0: A generation ago, the film My Son, My Son, the dramatisation of a well-known novel, was a popular tear-jerker. The theme of a spoiled boy who brought anguish to his father was taken from scripture. Let me read you some of the original story, approximately 3,000 years old, but as up-to-date as tomorrow's newspaper. I'm reading from 2 Samuel chapter 14 and verse 25. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his beauty as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. Then in chapter 15, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. When any man had a suit to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there's no man deputed by the king to hear you. Absalom added, Oh, I would judge in the land. Then every man with a suit or cause might come to me. I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to do obeisance to him, He would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Here we get our first hints of the enterprise of this rebel son, this ungrateful son against King David, his father. We read in the verses that follow, But he conspired more and more, sending secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. And so it was. The conspiracy gathered momentum, and the word came to the king that his own son had turned against him and wanted his father's throne. David had the option of bloodshed throughout the land or surrendering leaving, forsaking his home, his city, his people. David chose the latter course. Read further on in the chapter. that all the country wept aloud as all the people passed by, and the king crossed the brook Kedron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. And David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. It's very interesting. A thousand years later, the son of David went the same way. When his people rejected him as the way, the truth and the life, the son of David crossed the same brook, Kedron. He too went towards the Mount of Olives. For him too was a time of sorrows. Was he not a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief? Further on in this same book, 2 Samuel, we read of the great conflict that ultimately took place. Israel became dissatisfied with Absalom and many left him and joined his father. Battle was inevitable. And we read in the 18th chapter of the great conflict that took place between the armies of David and Absalom. In the fifth verse of that chapter, we read the king's command to his generals, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And now I read from verse six on. Chapter 18 of 2 Samuel So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. And the slaughter there was great on that day, twenty thousand men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom chanced to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding upon his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was left hanging between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. A certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to him, What? You saw him? Why didn't you strike him? The man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I wouldn't put forth my hand against the king's son. Jehovah said, I'll not waste time like this with you. And he took three darts and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. Then at the close of the chapter, the message finally reaches David. And it says in verse 33, the king was deeply moved and he went up to the room over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you. O Absalom, my son, my son. It is a beautiful story and a heart-rending one. For us, there is a key to be found in the 14th chapter of the same book, in the 14th verse, and I'm reading it now. The words are the words of the wise woman of Tekoa who came to visit David at a time when he's keeping Absalom at arm's length Because of Absalom's misbehaviour. David was unable to bring himself to punish his son. Neither could he bear to have him too far distant. And the wise woman comes to urge that he accept the son fully. And here are her her words. We must all die. We're all like water spilt on the ground that cannot be gathered up again. Yet doth God devise means." that he's banished, be not expelled from him. What a beautiful verse. We must all die. We're like water spilled on the ground that cannot be gathered up again. Until the people of God knew of the resurrection, that's just the way it seemed. But God doth devise means so that he's banished, be not expelled from him. What she's saying is that God loves sinners and welcomes them back. So why didn't King David welcome back Absalom? But of course, she was only offering a half-truth. King David should have punished Absalom for his misbehaviour. This was long before the final rebellion. It was David's failure to punish Absalom for his previous misdeeds that left him free to work the great rebellion that cost 20,000 lives. We're all God's Absaloms. God gave us life and all we have. But we've rebelled against him as Absalom rebelled against his life giver. All the good fathers of scripture tell us something about our heavenly father, Abraham, who gave his only son on the altar of sacrifice at God's request. The good father in the parable of the prodigal son and the story of David. Each of these fathers tells us something about the Heavenly Father's love. And when we read in chapter 19, the close of it, where David says, Would God I had died for thee? O Absalom, my son, my son. There, my friends, we see a hint of the love of God who did die for his rebel children, who did take our place, who paid the curse, the penalty that we owe because of the violation of his law. My son, my son. That is God's lament over every lost child of his. So first of all in this story, we see the great love of God, typified in, in David's love for his son. But there's another layer of meaning in this story. We have seen the words of the wise woman of Tekoa, And they present to us the problem that God had in the beginning when sin took place. How could God be both a righteous judge and yet a loving father? As the righteous judge, it was his duty to punish sin, to uphold the law. Yet as a father, he did not want to see his children lost. How could he solve that problem? God solved it by the cross. The cross showed that God would never downgrade his law. That law is eternal holy, just and good, the perpetual standard of righteousness. Rather than lower that law, God himself paid for the penalty of its violation. But he did it in such a way as to break the heart of every sinner who would observe God's treatment of his own son, our substitute. And never forget, God was in Christ. He was not a third party. Now David had the same problem as God on a lesser scale. He too was a judge and a father, but he failed. Now come back with me to the scene of this great battle, spoken of in 2nd Samuel chapter 18, the chapter that closes with David's lament, "My son, my son, would God I had died for thee, O Absalom, my son, my son." Come back to the battlefield. I see the forest of Mount Ephraim. Reeking with human gore, I see 20,000 corpses strewn upon the ground. And then, suspended on yonder oak, a spectacle for all time, I see the traitor-hearted Parasite. That would-be murder of his father. I see him with the javelins in his heart. That's the sequel of the rebellion of Absalom. As I contemplate the blood-drenched battlefield. As I think of the tears of the widows and the wail of fatherless children, as I think of the misery, the devastation that cursed the land, as I hear the wail of a stricken country ringing up into the ears of God, I discover what mere fancy does when mercy is allowed to triumph over justice. I point to the vast holocaust, to the ghastly corpses piled one over another, and I say, who slew all these? The reply is startling. Mercy slew them. Not least I point to yonder fatal oak where the body of Absalom hangs suspended with the javelin thrust through his quivering body and into his very heart. And I ask, who slew that miserable wretch? The answer is, mercy slew him. Absalom never would have been present at that battlefield or have been in a position to raise that standard of revolt. So he would never have brought on his own head that terrible retribution if he would not been the object of that royal mercy to which he had no claim. Mercy was the undoing of him and the cause of 20,000 deaths. That's the solemn moral of this tragic tale. Now with such a lesson as that before our eyes, shall we turn to the mighty monarch of the universe and venture to say, O oh God, why should you require an atonement? Why can't you forgive us without any atonement at all? I wonder what sort of a world we'd have if God were to act on such principles. I wonder what sort of a universe we would have if God were to act on such principles. God does not. God will not. Now, I proceed to ask, what would have been needed in order that Absalom might have been brought back from his banishment without danger to his king, his country or himself? Two things, two things at least. First, it would have been necessary that the moral dignity and majesty of law should be vindicated in an exemplary manner. Surely no less than this was demanded by the circumstances of the case. If absolence to be recalled to the king's court, it must somehow or other be so arranged so that the law shall not suffer by it, that the criminal shall not be able to point to that prince and to say, ah, there is a premium upon sin. Second, but not less, it would have been necessary that a radical change should have been effected in Absalom's character, so that a repetition of such offences might have been rendered most improbable, if not impossible. But mere mercy alone did not and could not produce this. On the contrary, it might be expected to breed callousness and indifference to the threats of the law, and to dispose the pardoned culprit to think lightly of an offence could be so readily overlooked. He was the same man morally after receiving the king's pardon as before, just as vindictive, just as ruthless, just as treacherous, just as cruel. Therefore his presence at David's court was a necessary danger to society. The results that followed are not surprising. We conclude then that these two things are necessary before the prerogative of mercy can be exercised by a sovereign wisely and well, without injury to his authority, to the state, or to the individual recipient of it. Keep these in mind, and then you'll be better able to understand the necessity of the cross. First, the vindication of the majesty of the law. Second, the complete transformation of the character of the offender. David couldn't accomplish either in this case. No human ingenuity could solve his problem. So in justice and right, there could be nothing for it but that Absalom should have remained in bonds. My friend, have you ever thought about it? The whole universe might have revolted if God had done what David did, indulged in mercy without satisfying the law. There has been popular in some religious circles a viewpoint of the atonement known as the moral influence theory. It says it wasn't necessary that Christ should die on the cross to satisfy the law, but it was only a means of showing that God loved us. This is a half-truth, my friend. The cross does show God loves us. But the moral influence theory that says that death was not necessary to meet the claims of the law, that in the face of the New Testament is a very serious charge indeed. It makes God's law dispensable. It says God was in error when at the beginning he said the wages of sin would be death. Read Genesis chapter 3. And if God's in error, he's not God. And furthermore, if the law was dispensable then, why not now? With good reason, both the Roman Catholic Church and Protestantism have rejected this theory over the centuries. This theory suggests that the main thing wrong with man is ignorance. But the Bible says the main thing wrong with man is sinfulness. Ignorance is only a part of it. God has taken care that his mercy was not bestowed promiscuously. God has taken care that his mercy should be bestowed in such a way that on the one hand, the majesty of his law and the eternal and changeless hatred of God against sin should be clearly manifested to the eyes of all, while on the other hand, the moral character of the sinner should be completely changed and revolutionised. That's what God has done. Sin is transgression, and transgression demands a penalty. Sin is guilt, and guilt demands expiation. Sin has to do with character, and character demands renewal. Sin is slavery, and slavery demands emancipation. Sin is ruin, and ruin demands rebuilding. Sin is war against Almighty God, and this demands the vindication of God's honour and holiness. There must be in his part no complicity with sin, no lax pardoning without sustaining the law. Just think on those things, my friend, if you want to understand the cross of Christ, if you want to be an intelligent Christian, if you want others to see the why and the how and the wherefore of Calvary and eternal life, its fruit. We said that sin is transgression of the law. Now note the words of Scripture. Jesus in his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. For him God sets forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins of the past through the forbearance of God. There we have it. Sin is transgression of the law but Christ has paid the penalty. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Sin is guilt. Guilt must be expiated. Scripture says the blood of Jesus Christ his son cleanses us from all sin. Sin involves character. The nature, the scripture says, except a man be born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Sin is slavery. And I read in scripture, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free. Be not entangled again in the yoke of bondage. Sin is ruin, but Scripture says, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy, that is undo, the works of the devil. And finally, sin is war against Almighty God. And God has no complicity with the enmity of the sinner against him and his government. We read in that crowning verse in the third chapter of Romans, To declare, I say, his righteousness, that he might be just, and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. God declares that all the great ends sought in redemption are indeed fulfilled in his plan of salvation, which revolves around the cross of Christ and the Christ of the cross. What slew Absalom? A foolish, unjust mercy. What saves modern Absaloms? the union of justice and mercy at the cross of Christ. There's yet another layer of meaning in this beautiful story. We have here an account of a beautiful son, a prince who had an ugly heart. who became a critic, a slanderer of the one who gave him life. We find him dying on a tree. Is it meant to tell us anything, my friends? Remember this Absalom is described as one being perfect in beauty, unspotted. Reminds us of the Bible's description of Lucifer. Read Ezekiel 28 or Isaiah 14. He too was perfect in beauty. But he, like Absalom, became a rebel prince, conspired against God his maker. The Bible calls him the slanderer. He's the diabolos, the devil. He slanders God. He persuades us that God doesn't love us. He persuades us that God is cruel. He fills us with fear, thinking God's going to do us harm. My friend, it's our fears that do us harm, our doubts, not our God who died for us. But Satan slandered God. He led a great rebellion in the universe. That's why this world is in chaos today. Absalom here is a symbol of him. The one who rebelled against the life-giver. But do you remember that in that chapter, 18, we read about Absalom dying on a tree? Anyone that knows the New Testament realises that this is the language used about Jesus. Him wicked hands took and hung on a tree, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Christ died on the tree of the cross. And my friend, when Christ died on that tree, he also impaled the devil on it. Hebrews 2. Verse 14, by death, Christ destroyed him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. When we look at Absalom on this tree, we are, we should be reminded that the world, the flesh and the devil were all nailed to Christ's cross. He destroyed principalities and powers. He triumphed over them. He made a show of them openly. Read Colossians 2 and verse 14. They should have no power over us today. So long as we believe in God, in Christ, in the cross, sin has no dominion over us. We may make mistakes, my friends, but sin can never regain its tyrannous hold on the life while we're trusting in the cross. That cross makes us hate sin. It makes us love righteousness. It makes us love God and our fellow men. It makes us distrust ourselves. It brings forth the fruit of holiness. What a wonderful story we have here in 2nd Samuel. The story of the rebel prince who represents us all, as well as the first great transgressor. But I wish to close our study today by reading another passage of Scripture, Isaiah 53, to that I now turn. If we want to understand how it is that God can forgive us our rebellion, Instead of impaling us on an eternal cross, we need to read this beautiful chapter. It really begins at the close of the previous chapter. I'm reading Isaiah 52:13 and into chapter 53. Behold my servant. He shall prosper. He shall be exalted and lifted up. He shall be very high. Many were astonished at him. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. His form was marred beyond that of the sons of men. He shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. Who has believed what we have heard? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He hath no form or comeliness that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, he has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that made us whole, with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was the will of the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. And thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. By knowledge of him shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I'll divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death he was numbered with the transgressors yet he bore the sin of men and he made intercession for the transgressors written hundreds of years before the cross of Christ this chapter tells us about the atonement about the Christ who would sprinkle many nations through the blood of the cross the Christ who would puzzle many by his terrible sufferings who as he stood in Pilate's judgment hall marred by beatings and bruisings had no form or comeliness that men desired him. Did you notice? He bore our griefs, he carried our sorrows, and by his chastisement, we are healed.